Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Once again, we welcome you to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. I'm joined by Colonel John Eidsmo with the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, there's a lot to there's a lot to talk about any any time we do this program, but it seems like heading into the midterm elections, are you feeling the the weight of of the decision coming next week? Well, this is going to be a very important election. I mean, it's like Ronald Reagan once said, not just the quote that he gave us right now, but a famous statement of his that freedom is always only one generation away from extinction. It only takes one generation that cares about security or cares about government benefits and freebies from the government more than it cares about liberty in order for liberty to be gone. And we want to make sure that doesn't happen. And probably I can remember, I'm trying to remember back right now and I can't think of a midterm election that people were saying it's not important. Everyone was important, but there are some special reasons why this one is very important. You know, this last election, the radical wing of the Democratic Party, of course, took control of the White House. And whether that was by a legitimate election or not is something we won't bother going into right now. There's reasons to question it, is all I'll say. And anyway, they also kept their control of the House by a very, very narrow margin. And they managed to gain control of the Senate as well. In fact, that wasn't even certain until many days after the election. And even at that point, where it looked like the Georgia senators, we had two senators up at the same time in Georgia, and it looked like both of those we're going into runoffs, and Republicans thought, well, we'll win the runoffs, and then at least we'll retain control of the Senate. But by very narrow margins, and again, the legitimacy of those margins is open to some question, the Democratic candidates won both of those Senate seats. Mm. And that gave the Democrats a 50-50 tie in the Senate, which meant that the president of the Senate, the presiding officer of the Senate, I should say, the vice president, Kamala Harris, would cast the deciding vote. And since she would cast the deciding vote, it also meant that the committee chairman would all be of the Democrat Party. And committee chairman only has one vote, like everybody else does, but they have immense power to tie up a bill and keep it from coming up for a vote as does the leadership, the Speaker of the House, and the President of the Senate, and the Majority Leader and Majority Whip. They have tremendous power to determine which bills come up for votes and which ones don't, and also tremendous power to pressure their own people, arm-twist their people into voting a certain way. And... I will give her credit. Nancy Pelosi has been very, very good at that. She, in fact, one congresswoman that I know tells me something about Nancy Pelosi. She says she's utterly ruthless, but one thing about her is she knows people. She says Nancy Pelosi 
knows the names and ages of every one of my children and asks me about them. In other words, she does so for personal reasons, but also that means she's good at getting the goods on somebody if she needs to do that in order to get somebody's vote. And we would like to think in an ideal world that our politicians don't have skeletons in their closets, but we all have sinful natures and we all have some. We would like to think that those wouldn't influence how we vote, but if there is a veiled threat that something like that might reveal that might embarrass my family or might cost me the next election, there's a lot of people that that would influence how they vote on an issue. Anyway, the point of the matter is that by the very narrowest of margins, the Democrats have had control of both houses of Congress. Now, one thing that has pleased me a great deal is that some of the most egregious things that they have tried to do, like the For the People Act, which would take all of the early voting and these other things, the ballot drop boxes and all of these other things that I think are unconstitutional, I think are illegal, and I think also facilitate fraud. These things were done in a few states, and those things might have made the difference between carrying or losing certain of those states. But the For the People Act, if it had been passed, would have made that the required practice in all 50 states. And they have not been able to get that through yet. For one thing, we've had a couple of senators, Senator Manchin of West Virginia and Senator Sinema of Arizona, that have had a bit of an independent streak, possibly because of their voters back home. West Virginia is, with the maybe possible exception of Alabama, probably the most conservative state east of the Mississippi. And Senator Manchin has certainly not wanted to antagonize his populace there because he needs them for re-election. And we can be thankful that he was there. Now, let's not be under any illusions that Senator Manchin is a conservative, or even less, Senator Senator. Thankfully, they have several times refused to step in line with the rest of the Democratic Party in the Senate. And as a result, several of these most egregious bills were defeated. By a very close margin, we saw where the president had nominated Ketanji Brown to be a justice of the Supreme Court, and by a very close margin, the Senate approved her, and so she is now on the court. That doesn't change the basic voting pattern of the court because she's there to replace a retiring liberal Democrat, and so it is one liberal replacing another, although Brown is probably a lot more radical than the person she, she replaced is. At any rate, point of the matter is, control of both of those houses of Congress has been very important. Now, let's ask a question. Brian, I'm hoping maybe we can make this a bit of a freewheeling discussion here. Let's say if as conservatives and let's say as Republicans, if we had a choice that we could win the House or we could win the Senate, but we couldn't win both or both. 
which would you think we ought to choose, the House or the Senate? I'd pick the House. And why do you say the House? Because they hold the purse strings. They hold the purse strings, and they hold those purse strings in the sense that the House originates bills for revenue. Now, really, both houses have certain control over the purse strings. Obviously, any revenue bill that the House wants, it's not going to get through the through and passed into law unless the Senate votes for it as well. But all revenue bills have to originate in the House. Now, there was a reason for that originally from the constitutional standpoint, and that's that the people pay the taxes, and the House was the body that represents the people. You may recall that originally the members of the House were elected by district by popular vote. The senators were chosen by the state legislature. People did not vote for their state legislatures, or I'm sorry, for their United States senators until the adoption of the 17th Amendment in 1913. My mom and dad even remembered when the state legislature would appoint the Pearsons to represent that state in the United States Senate. And since and one of the benefits of that, by the way, was that it meant that the state legislatures had a check on Congress. Congress would have a hard time getting something passed if the members of the Senate are all appointed by the state legislatures and the state legislatures found that particular bill undesirable. So there were some real benefits for that. It was a check on federal power. And we gave up that important check when we went for the popular election of United States senators. But at any rate, back in those days, the principle was that it is the House, not the Senate, that represents the people. And the people, not the states, pay the taxes. Therefore, revenue bills should originate in the House. And that's in Article 9 of the Constitution. We call it, I'm sorry, Article 1, Section 9 of the Constitution. We call it the Origination Clause. But for that reason, the House is very important. Now, the Senate, though, is also very important for a different reason. The importance of the Senate is that all, member, all federal judges, including Supreme Court justices, have to be approved by a majority vote of the Senate. And not only that, but cabinet officials and some sub-cabinet officials have to be approved by the Senate as well. And so the Senate is important for that reason, at least for the important, the purpose of keeping the control of the Supreme Court and determining who's going to be in power in the judiciary. The Senate is more important than the House for that reason. There's another reason that the Senate or that the House, though, is important. And really, the question I just asked as to which is more important. If you had asked me the question, I'm not sure which answer I'd give. I see a lot of importance for both. But I remember way, way back in the 1990s, Bill Clinton had just been elected president. And frankly, yes, it's possible that Barack Obama and Joe Biden have done even more damage than Bill Clinton did. But none are more despicable, in my opinion, than Bill Clinton. But... That's partly because I was 
serving in the military at the time he was there demonstrating against the Vietnam War and dodging the draft and things like that and so on. But at any rate, shortly after he was elected, he was speaking to a group of high school students at Monticello, that's Jefferson's home. And one of the students asked him a question. The question was, if Jefferson were alive today, would you appoint him to a cabinet position? And if so, which one? <laughs> and William Jefferson Clinton, the president-elect, answered, if Thomas Jefferson were alive today, I would appoint him Secretary of State. And then Al Gore and I would resign so Jefferson could become president. <laughs> Problem with that answer is that the commander-in-chief didn't know his chain of command. Prior to a few years before that, in the 1960s, that would have been a correct answer. But that was changed by law, and today, if the president and vice president are both dead or removed or otherwise unable to serve in office, who becomes president then? Who's next in line after the vice president? Speaker of the House, isn't it? The Speaker of the House. And the Speaker of the House is elected by the majority of the House. And so, if Democrats control the House and the Democrats elect Nancy Pelosi Speaker, she is third in line to be the president. Now, on the other hand, if, let's say, Republicans were to take the House this year and elect a Republican Speaker, Mark Meadows, for example, or somebody else like this, then if for some reason the president and vice president were impeached and removed from office, then we'd have a Republican president. That's not very likely to happen, but at any rate, if it did, in other words, it really, it's hard to say which is more important, the House or the Senate. But it looks like Republicans' chances of gaining control of the House are very good right now. After all, we're only a few votes short. And it looks like enough House seats are going to flip this time that some say it's going to be as many as 30 or so, some say less, but it only has to be about maybe six or eight, and Republicans will take control of the House. If they do, practical effect of this will be that the Speaker will be a Republican, and the speaker will have a lot of control over what bills come up and which ones don't. The majority leader, majority whip will be Republican. And possibly even more important than that, the committee chairs will be Republican. And they have a lot of control over what bills come up for a vote in the committee and which ones do not. And so that control over the House is very important. Now, you would think maybe the chances of getting control of the Senate would be greater than the House because right now in the Senate it is tied. But why is it that it's going to be more difficult possibly in the Senate this year? That you're going to have to tell me. Well, the reason is simply this, that, you know, we elect senators for six-year terms, staggered six-year terms, meaning we elect only 33 or 34 in any one election cycle. And of the 
33 that are up for election this time, which I remember the precise number, but about 20 of them are Republicans, and only about 13 of them are Democrats, meaning that more Republican seats are in jeopardy this year than Democrat seats. Anyway, so that's the reason, and means the Republicans would have to do especially well to hold on to all of their seats and gain at least one of the others to gain control. However, we have a president right now who various polls that I see indicate that his popularity is somewhere at 40% or less. That depends on which poll that you look at, of course. But if that's the case, you would think that that means that the Democrats are in grave danger in, in in the Senate. Plain fact of the matter is, though, people don't always vote for their local senators or congressmen based on what they think of the president. And they may not care for the president, but their particular senator, who may be of the president's party and may vote with the president almost all the time, they may nevertheless happen to like that senator for some reason and may vote for it. Anyway, I would suggest to you another reason, and I know I'm treading on, on shaky ground when I talk about this, <laughs> but we've had a problem in this last couple of years that President Trump has endorsed a number of candidates and in my opinion, sometimes the candidates he has endorsed were not necessarily the ones that had the best chance of winning. For example, we look to Masters in Arizona. Masters is an articulate candidate. He seems to be doing quite well. He did very well in the debate recently. But it appeared to me that his opponent in the Republican primary might have had a better chance of winning the election. Likewise with Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania. Again, Dr. Oz has run a good campaign and his opponent, Fetterman, has shown himself to be something of a disaster. But at any rate, I'm thinking again that Oz's Republican opponent in the primary, who was just as conservative, probably would have had a better chance of winning the general election. Anyway, so we have that factor to deal with in a few cases. But let me just ask, are there any particular seats that you're looking at right now that you think are especially important? You're looking at it from out there in Idaho and out in the West, and I'm looking at it from Alabama and in the South and in the East and Midwest. You may see things differently from I do. What do you see? The the only seat out West that, uh, that I think is a crucial one not to give up is uh, Mike Lee from Utah. You know, Senator Mike Lee. Um, I don't think Evan McMullen, his his Republican challenger, or his, uh, I don't know if he's in Republican or independent. Anyway, he, he has kind of a spoiler going against him, but I don't think McMullen can do it. I'm, I'm looking at it, I'm looking at kind of a broader trend, and I wanted to know your take. Um, do you see accountability driving the vote, you know, as we go into this midterm, I know that the, the political parties are all about, you know, getting their hands on the power, getting their candidates elected. But I'm wondering if you are seeing a trend of people who are stepping up, who are active politically, because 
you know, whether it was the COVID lockdowns, whether it was the woke agenda being introduced into their school to their kids, it sure feels like there are a lot of people who are like, you know what, the last two years have been radical crap forced on us, and this is a chance to exercise our vote to to say no. Well, I agree with you. Let me just say something about, about the Utah race. You know, there are some interesting things going on in Utah. We think of Utah as a conservative bastion, and it still is, really. But there are some interesting trends going on in Utah. You could probably analyze some of those trends better than I could. And McMullen, of course, was a challenger to Donald Trump several times and ran, I believe, as an independent, although claimed to be Republican. And because of some of President Trump's moral actions in, in the far past, a lot of Utah people didn't care for Trump. And Trump was not as popular in Utah as he would be in a lot of other conservative states for that reason. And McMullen developed something of a following. Mike Lee, as far as I'm concerned, has been an outstanding senator. He's been as solid a conservative senator as you could possibly have. And Anyway, the last thing I saw, poll, the Emerson poll that came out just a couple of days ago, said that Mike Lee is up by about 10 points, indicating he probably should be safe for re-election, and I'm certainly hoping so, but at any rate, if we lost Mike Lee, that would be dangerous, and who knows what McMullen would be, but I, I see him as certainly nobody that can be relied upon in any way. That's my thought on it. I guess yours is fairly similar. Yeah, I think Mike has done a pretty good job. I, my, I'm, I'm a little cynical, but I've watched this for long enough to realize the longer someone is in Washington, D.C., Orrin Hatch is a good example. They start out very good. They can actually do some good while they're there, but the longer they're there, the more they kind of become entrenched in the machinery and the more they, uh, the more they become part of the problem. And that's not a slam against them. It's just that's the nature of Washington, D.C., and, you know, I remember back in the 1960s, I've been around a long time, as you can tell by my white hair, I'm 77 years old, but I can remember back in the 1960s when Orrin Hatch was first elected, wow, this guy is going to be a wonderful conservative. <laughs> and for the most part, he's been pretty good. And even toward the end, he was pretty good. But at any rate, you're right, he kind of became establishment and not the conservative firebrand that he appeared to be early. Mike Lee was certainly elected as a conservative stalwart. And from what I can tell, at least, I think he's held the line on that so far better than better than Hatch did. But you always have to watch because you tend to assume just because somebody was a solid conservative when you elected him <laughs> that he's going to stay that way the rest of his life. and And they don't. But now you talk about accountability, and it's hard to know what to mean by accountability, but we're going to have to take a break, so let's look at that issue after we take our break.
Welcome back. This is Constitution Classroom with Colonel John Eidsmo on the uh, Loving Liberty Radio Network. Colonel Eidsmo, just as we as we went to break, we were going to get your thoughts on accountability. And, and specifically, is accountability driving some of the um, political initiative and, and the voter turnout in, in this midterm election? Maybe I could just fire that question back to you and, and ask, Brian, what do you mean by accountability? I mean, I could think of that in several different ways, but why don't you kind of explain what you mean by accountability first? Okay, and I'm, I'm talking about accountability for some of the decisions, some of the policies, some of the uh, the things that were forced on people, and this, and this covers a lot of territory. I mean, you know, President Biden's first act upon taking his oath of office was an executive order shutting off a very key oil pipeline. And and since then, it's like the, the energy sector has been driven into the ground by design. You know, there's been uh, anything but peace fomented, you know, with, with people seeking, you know, division and so forth. I, I've never seen a more radicalized, more politicized um, state of politics. And I'm not saying the Republicans are, are totally blameless either. I'm just saying it's there was a lot of stuff forced on the American people, particularly once the pandemic began, um, that we're starting to learn, hey, this this was not being done in our best interest. And and you're actually starting to hear some people float the idea, well, uh, I think what we ought to do is just all forgive, you know, suck it up and move on. Uh, we all make mistakes when we're in the dark like this. And I don't know. I'm hearing people talk about, no, what we need is accountability. The people who made these decisions, implemented and forced these policies need to answer for what they did and, uh, and I'm just wondering if you're seeing any trend of that at, at any level driving the, the voter turnout. I wish I could say yes, and I will answer yes to some extent, but not nearly as much as it should be. There, particularly where you find instances of Republicans running against incumbent Democrats. They are trying to hold their feet to the fire, particularly as to what the president's action have been and as to how this particular incumbent Democrat senator or congressman has voted with President Biden 99% of the time and so on, it doesn't seem like that's what's motivating the voters as much as I think it should. Now, there's another sense in which we look to accountability and that in regards to moral actions. And one place I look especially for that is in the Georgia election right now, And in Georgia, you're seeing Herschel Walker, who was a football quarterback, but also a strong believing Christian, a strong constitutionalist, businessman, and one who, from his debates and so on, has demonstrated that he has a good understanding of the issues, versus a pastor by the name of Ralph Warnock, who is a pastor technically, but in the very, very radical sense of the term and a pastor who has endorsed the pastor that was the pastor for Barack Obama, who used the profanity about America in his sermons and so on. And in that case, you're seeing accountability morally in being used somewhat on both sides. On Ralph Warnock's account there, his ex-wife has taken to the air several times talking about how he had assaulted her, run over her foot with a vehicle one time, and other things like this, that then says that his moral character is not what he pretends to be on the surface. 
where at the same time, they have had several women come forward to claim that the Republican, Herschel Walker, back in his football days, had paid for abortions for several girlfriends, and he denies that. So far as I can see, they've come up with no proof whatsoever of the accusation other than just the word of those who have made the accusation. It looks to me like Georgia voters aren't paying too much attention to either one of these things. And on the one hand, as far as Ralph Warnock's beliefs, I don't know how, certainly Republicans are motivated by that. I don't know how much Democrats care about how radical he has been. I would like to think that a lot of black Democrat Christians would see that these radical views that he is espousing are not theirs. As far as the supposed abortions for Herschel Walker, well, I think voters are looking at that in a couple of ways. One, it may very well never have happened. It's just the word of several, and we've seen how they tried to do that with Judge Moore, for example, and how they tried to do that with Clarence Thomas, how they tried to do that with Justice then Judge Kavanaugh, and I think the voters are becoming a little bit jaded at that. And secondly, they're saying, even if that did happen, it was way, way back a long time ago when he was a football player, and he's not necessarily the same person today. So I don't see that that's having a whole lot of effect right now. Here in Alabama, we have a governor who is a Republican, and anyway, she is going to win re-election by a large margin. I did not vote for her in the primary, and I was quite disappointed with her in a number of ways, but she came out in favor of legalized gambling in Alabama. She was the one who imposed the mask orders and closed down churches during the pandemic and so on. But on the other hand, for business purposes, she was quite good. On pro-life issues, she was very good. And on a number of other issues, she was very good. And so she was a mixture. And I want people to remember that this is this sweet old grandmotherly lady is the same lady that closed down churches and forced people to wear masks. But anyway, she'll be reelected. People have largely forgotten about that. And somebody once said that, it was R.J. Rushman, he once said that the average American voter's political memory extends back only about 30 days. <laughs> I would say that Rush Dooney was an incurable optimist. I would say more likely about seven days. But at any rate, I think that we do need to hold them accountable. Like, for example, on the gas, the gas issue and so on. I think a lot of people are holding them accountable on that issue. And, and that is bothering a lot of people because... That's something they see. They see every day. And every day you go to the pump and you pay and you see those prices. And first of all, when prices were going way, way up, and remember they were down to, what was it, $2 a gallon or thereabouts when Trump was president, or less than that even. And now they went up to four something and the president was saying, this is all beyond my control. Then it's Putin's fault, that right. sort of thing. <laughs> and, but then 
prices started to go down for a while as he released some oil and his prices go down. Now he's taking credit for the prices going down. Okay, well, if he could make prices go down now, he could have made them go down before. So if he can take credit for them being down now, he has to take blame for their being higher before. But now in the last couple of weeks, they've started to go back up again. And so I don't think he's gained a whole lot out of that. Basically made a fool of himself with the Saudis on that issue. I think a lot of people still are quite resentful of the way the president handled Afghanistan. I have a dermatologist doctor who came over here with the Vietnam, well, she's Vietnamese, and she came over here at age 14 with the withdrawal from Vietnam in 1975 and saw that firsthand. And when she saw what happened there with Afghanistan a couple summers ago, she was absolutely furious. She said, even what we what they did in Vietnam was at least orderly compared to this. This is a disaster. We betrayed an ally. We left people behind. And this was an absolute disaster. In fact, I even heard that the Taliban has now opened a chain of army surplus stores and <laughs> all the army surplus. And we no, that's that's a joke, but it could have been, or that they found all these absentee ballots and cast them all for Biden and <laughs> things like that. But anyway, all that is a joke. But point of the matter is, what is taking place in Ukraine right now? None of that would be happening in Ukraine right now had it been, not been for the way Biden handled Afghanistan a few months earlier. And you can be sure the Chinese are watching this and they're watching Ukraine. And they're deciding based on this whether it makes sense to go into Taiwan. A lot of aggressors, North Korea is looking at this, but I hope our American voters are as well. What about uh, what you see happening in in education? It you know I'm not I'm not trying to uh, to highlight conflict, but boy, it was crazy a year ago when parents were starting to stand up for um, you know really lurid books being put in their kids' school libraries, or you know um, making pronouns the focus of the day's lesson, or you know, the drag queen story hour stuff. Um, when parents stood up to that, they were, I think, very unfairly maligned, you know, compared to domestic terrorists or potential domestic terrorists. And, and at one point, I think the Department of Justice actually was looking into investigating them as if they were some kind of threat, you know, to to the security of, of the country. Um, I, I see this being kind of an election. I, if, if there's anybody involved, I'm betting it's the parents who... Uh, who were fighting that battle last year and, and continue to fight it. I mean, you know, right up to today. Well, that's a very good point. And in fact, there are some who are saying the the education issues, the school board issues, this sort of thing, that this is the Republican sleeper issue this year. Now, one of the problems with that, of course, is that most of the time, these decisions are made by local school boards. And generally, local school boards are not elected on partisan labels. Nevertheless, if there are school board elections going out, it's probably going to be more conservative parents who are going to be energized to come out and vote, and will probably vote Republican on the partisan issues as well. So, yes, this could bring out a lot of Republican voters, and I'm certainly hoping it does, because I just find it amazing that the defeated governor of Virginia, the 
one who was running for re-election after we had these things going on at some of the school boards. And one of the things that Norquist was his name, I believe, or something like that. But when he made the statement there that I don't see where parents think they should be the ones to control the schools. It is their children and they pay the taxes. Of course, they should control the schools and the teachers are really their employees. But there was a Supreme Court decision, 1925, the decision of Pierce versus Society of Sisters that involved a Oregon law that required that all parents had to send their children to public schools. And the Supreme Court strike, struck that out as unconstitutional and said the child is not the mere creature of the state. The parents who brought him into the world have the right coupled with the high duty to recognize and prepare him for additional obligations. I think that simply says what most parents thought was the case right from the beginning. God didn't place these children in the hands of the state. God gave them to us. And we send them to the schools because we want the schools to do our bidding in educating our children in the values that we believe in, not in the values they might want to impose upon them. And so, yes, I think you are right. This is a sleeper issue and is definitely my hope that this is going to bring out a lot of voters. You know, that's really what a lot of this is going to come down to. The electorate is divided. Right now, the last polls I show, as far as congressional elections, it says that about 6% more say that they're likely to vote for Republicans than vote for Democrats. But it still really depends on which side does the best job of getting its people out to vote. And that's gonna be the work of the parties, but it's also gonna be who is motivated. And sleeper issues that may have angered voters for some time. Those are the things that may cause voters to say, I am fed up, I'm voting in this election, and otherwise might not vote. So I'm hoping you're right on that. Well, you can see a certain amount of desperation in in the messaging that uh, particularly the Democratic Party has right now. Um, you know, I mean, over the weekend, and I know it's it, it's kind of a, a lurid story, but, you know, Speaker Pelosi's husband was attacked. I don't know the details on it, but um, that was spun immediately as, well, this is what happens when you believe misinformation and conspiracy theories. You You immediately want to go commit a violent act, and it's like, Wow, they really went there. They're they're trying to portray that as this is what you can expect if you don't vote for a Democrat. And this guy, the guy who was charged with the attempted murder here, this guy is a affiliate of hippie communes, a drug addict. He is a front person for nudist colonies and things like that. And I mean, the, this guy is a Republican operative or a far-right conservative, nothing could be further from the truth. But yes, they tried to spin it that way to try to gain some mileage out of it, just like they tried to do with the January 6th thing. And I don't think they got much mileage out of that. I think people look at that and they basically they say what I say. that Look, if President Trump had been trying to stage a coup, he certainly would have done a better job than that. I mean, this was nothing of the sort. But, you know, when you talk about education, how much time do we have left, Ryan? Oh, we've got just under 10 minutes. This would be a good time to shift over to another topic because 
right now I am working on a brief to the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals, that's the Court of the Upper Midwest, in regard to a policy by a school district. The case is called Parents Defending Education versus Linmar Community School District. Linmar is in the Cedar Rapids, Marion, Iowa, and Eastern Iowa. And interestingly enough, the year before we were married, my wife taught for that school district. But things were a lot different in that district back then, or we wouldn't be talking about this lawsuit. But the school district decided on a policy, a policy that addresses transgender issues. The policy provides that a child may identify with whatever gender he wants to be identified with. And if he does, he is to be addressed by teachers and by fellow students by his preferred pronouns or by his preferred name. In other words, if a student is named John and he decides to know I'm a girl and from now on I want to be known as Joanne, students have to address him as Joanne and as she and her and so on. And refusals to do so will be considered offenses under the school district's bullying policy, 103.1, and offenses under that can be punished by anything up to suspension and or expulsion from school. So and another thing that makes that policy, I think, even more egregious than this is that it goes on to say that if the student does not want the parents to know that he is now identifying with the opposite sex, they are to keep that confidential, at least until they have prepared a full gender profile for the child then. They don't notify the parents, but the parents may still, at that point, based on state law, have the right to look at their child's records and see this. Anyway, some 76 parents came to protest this at the school board meeting where it was adopted last April. And the school board nevertheless adopted it by a vote of five to do. And we are thankful for those two that voted against it. Those parents with an organization that they call Parents Defending Education have filed a lawsuit in federal district court saying that this is illegal and anyway, they lost in the district court. The district court said that the problem you have with this case is that you don't have standing to object yet because you don't yet have a child who has used the wrong pronouns and has been suspended or expelled from school because of that. And until you do, this isn't really ripe for adjudication. Anyway, so the case is on appeal to the Eighth Circuit. And a number of the arguments that we are making here in this case, I'm, I'm making some, stand, some arguments of standing here that already you have a free speech violation, even if you don't have a student actually being expelled. Already you've got a free speech violation because as we are saying here, compelled speech 
is an especially egregious violation of the First Amendment. Give you an example of what I mean by compelled speech. Let's suppose, let's suppose that you hate Donald Trump. And not only do you dislike him personally, but you find his style of leadership abhorrent. You don't care for his moral actions. You don't like his tweets. And you hope he is not reelected. But let's say there is a law passed that prohibits you from expressing your convictions, expressing it, it prohibits you from criticizing Donald Trump. You're going to consider that a free speech violation. <laughs> and you may solemnly comply, but you're going to be angry about it. But let's suppose that the law doesn't say that. Let's suppose the law says that you have to publicly praise Trump. You have to publicly have a Trump bumper sticker on your vehicle. And you have to say you love his tweets. You're going to be outraged. You're going to say, I'll go to jail before I do that. Well, that is compelled speech. And the courts have repeatedly said, said that the First Amendment protects you from that being forced to say what you don't want to say, at least as much as it protects you from being prohibited to say what you want to say. For example, we have a case, West Virginia State Board of Education versus Barnett, 1943, in which the court held that public schools could not force students to say the Pledge of Allegiance if they objected to it. Now, I'm for saying the Pledge of Allegiance, and the court didn't say that the schools can't have the Pledge of Allegiance. They just said you can't force unwilling students to say it. You had a case, Maynard or Woolley versus Maynard, 1977, in which the Supreme Court said that you look at the New Hampshire license plate, which has the New Hampshire motto on it, live free or die, and there was a Jehovah's Witness as a pacifist who didn't want that motto on his license plate and covered it up with tape. The Supreme Court said that he was entitled to do so because he could not be compelled to display a message that he did not want to display. That's what's going on here. Not only are students being prohibited from referring to people by the pronouns or the names that they believe are appropriate, they are being prohibited from, or they're being compelled to address people by the pronouns that they think don't apply. For example, let's say John has decided that he is now Joanne and he is a girl, but I as a fellow student don't agree. I as a fellow student believe that you are still scientifically what your DNA says you are, or you are still of the gender that God assigned you to when you were conceived or born. And therefore, I would be saying something that is false. I would be lying if I called you a girl, if I called you Joanne instead of John, if I, history is she instead of he. Or I may even feel that I am sinning against God by doing so, that by doing so, I am buying into a practice that is contrary to the will of God and also is scientifically very dangerous. In fact, there are studies that show that those who are transgender are much more likely to attempt suicide, and that is true even after they have transgendered, as it was before. And there are furthermore studies that show that 
in the grade school level, children who decide to identify with the opposite sex, between 60 and 90% of them change their minds and go back to their original identification later. And yet during that time, if they are being encouraged to follow that gender preference, they may be taking hormone therapy, they may be taking even surgery and so on, that might be very difficult to reverse. This is a case that's going on and they're in the Linmar School District in Iowa. That's only the surface. There are so many other similar cases going on. Hopefully we'll set a precedent here.